Support for WGLT's Grow comes from FS Custom Turf by Evergreen FS. FS Custom Turf offers complete lawn and tree care services to preserve the health of yards, trees, and shrubs. Products and services detailed at evergreen-fs.com. Welcome to Grow. I'm Sarah Nardi. Today, Patrick Murphy and I are talking with Nick Frillman. Nick is with U of I Extension, and he's here to talk to us about ways to incorporate edible landscapes into your lawn or garden. Nick is a huge fan of the serviceberry, a flowering bush that produces large, dark berries. Not only is it beautiful, but the berries are edible and delicious. Nick says his grandma even makes a mean serviceberry pie. Nick, welcome. Hey, thanks, Sarah. Happy to be here. And Patrick Murphy, Nick loves the serviceberry. What are some of your picks for edible landscaping? Well, I, because of my garden design background, Mm -hmm. I'm partial to the stuff that's near the ground plane. So some edible beds that I've seen that were amazing were using plants like potato, melon, and zucchini as a ground cover, as a vegetation. Hmm. And then to move up off the ground into kind of the architectural layer the implied walls could serve as the service berry that Nick's informing us of, but we could also layer it in with the regular blueberry bush or high blue high bush blueberries. But I think raspberries and rhubarb are some others that are kind of, they look nice in mass with all those unusual leaf textures. That would be my first guess. Okay. Rhubarb is actually my favorite pie, and my grandma made a really good <laughs> rhubarb pie. So I guess I, I'm going to put myself down for rhubarb. Yeah, those giant leaves um, in the garden landscape next to, you know, some other, I'll say, regular-sized leaves uh, are a stark contrast. Those leaves can get, like, bigger than your head by far. That contrast is something you're looking for, too, and you try and improve the aesthetics in your garden. That contrast between the heavy and the fine, coarse plants, that's something that everyone notices. That makes sense. You want, like, some textural deviation in there. And we, I think we're going to talk about vining edibles, which mm-hmm. makes me think of other things. But when, Nick, you have some cool ideas for vining, right? Yeah, so it's a growing trend, I think, at some not only local breweries, but some breweries that I've visited in Colorado, Wisconsin, and elsewhere. But a lot of times at breweries, but also some people's yards, I've seen people using hops vines as Ooh. a decorative um, fixture in the landscape. So they'll, you know, attach like a weather vane to the top of their building and then string down some steel uh, wire from there to a pole in their yard. And then if you plant a hops vine near some point on the ground that it'll connect to that um, metal wire, it'll actually climb the wire over time. And eventually you get what's like a canopy, a natural canopy of vines over your area. That's really cool. And you know, I've had a lot of beer in my life and I had no idea (laughs) that hops grew on vines. I thought they grew closer to the ground. No, they grow on 10, sometimes 20 foot tall hops vines that are a real pain to establish and Mm -hmm. put up hops trellises for. That's why they're so expensive for brewers to buy them. But for the home landscape people, um, they can climb fence posts. They can be ornamental decorations to the side of your house. Or they can also form that kind of tent-like shape that we were discussing. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Talking about edible things, and we know that hops are used in beer. Are there other things we can do with them? Yeah, so I used to work with uh, a professor, Dr. Sarah Lovell-Taylor, who's actually at um, the Missouri Center for Agroforestry now on MU campus, and I believe that she still makes a hops tea that I think is commercially available at, uh, I saw him at uh, Harvest Market in Champaign, actually. So. Oh. But definitely homeowners or landscapers could use hops cones for tea, not just beer, if you're not into the alcohol thing. Got it. Yeah, and uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up, Sarah, you mentioned it already, is grapes. Uh, My grandmother recalls being on her family farm and running through the grape arbor as a kid and 
it being completely in the shade on a hot summer day. So I think that's definitely not one to be overlooked as well. I had grapes as a child growing on a fence along the side of my yard, and they mm-hmm. were really charming. And yeah. they were delicious, but you had to beat the birds to them because the birds love grapes. Can we talk about some of the cultural stuff? Yeah. So my when I think of edible landscaping and I think of the plants that are edible, I also know that the majority of them, they require full sun. So it would be easier to talk about what doesn't require full sun. What might you consider if you had, say, a part part sun, say six hours of direct sunlight? That's mm-hmm. not quite enough to grow tomatoes. Mm-hmm. But Nick, is there something in that range that many yards have that you could recommend? Are there some edibles that'll handle that lack of full eight plus hours of sunlight? Definitely. And so my research at the University of Illinois was uh, centered around a couple of things, one of which was the family of fruit known as currants. So at the Refuge Food Forest, actually in North Normal, if you have the chance to go over there, uh, we have black, white, and red currants maturing on their uh, on the canes within their, their current bush form right now. Probably in uh, in the next week or two, the red and white currants will be ripe, so people can head on over to the Refuge Food Forest and check those out. But also the black currants, which are known for their um, deep, complex, spicy, peppery, but also sour and uh, appealing flavor. So those actually all are part of a family that can tolerate up to about 50 or 60% shade, if not a little bit more. That's a huge benefit because lots of people have probably considered filling in some of the voids in their ornamental garden displays, right? So it seems easy to fill in the sun ones. Uh, That seems like the easy part, right? If you've got the full sun spot and, uh, you know, if you're paying attention to a couple of minor design criteria details like bees, right? Bees and pollinators are going to be attracted to these plants maybe just as much or more than your flowering ornamentals and also because of the rotation of when the flowers appear so mm-hmm. do we have to pay attention to things like bees and bee stings near uh say patios or doors that are active i would say yeah mm-hmm. what do you have an opinion on that bees generally like haven't been a problem for the edible landscaping plants that i've seen and been around um, they do support them actually i just took a really good picture of i had never seen this wasp before but it's called a brown paper wasp i believe I took a picture of a wasp on a cluster of blackcurrant flowers. And normally we think, you know, wasps aren't our friends. Wasps will just sting at random. But they're actually, um, they're actually predator insects that will eat your pest bugs. So, mm. yeah, I think we need to be careful of some of them, but some others can also help. And I think, uh, in, especially in this day and age, we want to attract and, and help and give space to all the pollinators that we can. Absolutely. Yes, we should respect the pollinators. I happen to be allergic to all of them, so I, I do appreciate the point about keeping them maybe away from high traffic areas mm-hmm. so we can encourage them to come to our gardens, but maybe not encourage them to, to sting us in the face, mm-hmm. which has happened to me. Oof. On the first day of second grade at a new school, <laughs> I got stung in the eye by a bee and my eye swelled shut, and my dad sent me to school in an eye patch. Oh, so rock and roll. You live down that reputation. That's right, man. <laughs> That's great. So, Nick, can you kind of give us some advice and some guidance on a few of the uh, maintenance or anticipated mm. needs for our edible plantings? Yeah, um, I want to focus specifically on the on the woody ones, especially the ones that a lot of people are probably utilizing already. So your apple trees, 
um, your pear, Asian pear, cherry trees, and then going down the list, service berry, not so sure about high bush blueberry, but current, all of these need um, a couple of things, usually on an annual basis, if not a little bit more. So the first one that we want to talk about is pruning. Especially for fruiting trees and fruiting canes, it's important to keep your plants pruned. Um, and that occurs in the off season. And unfortunately, that means going out into your garden space in the months between November when that plant becomes fully dormant all the way until early to mid-March when that plant is starting to wake up for the spring. Mm -hmm. And so not everybody likes getting out there in but, February in your car But get out hearts. there. You should. It's good for us. Yeah, definitely. It's good for you. Get some uh, winter sun on your face. Mm -hmm. It's pretty nice. And with proper pruning and maintenance, you can expect a good crop of fruit on all these plants um, pretty much year in, year out, as long as you're abiding by the other two rules, which are... If these plants are putting out a lot of uh, yield, a lot of fruit for you, they're probably going to need fertilizer. Organic or synthetic is up to, you know, homeowner or renter discretion. And then last but not least, a good layer of uh, compost and a little bit of mulch around the base of especially new plants to facilitate their establishment and also some moisture retention during those hotter days like today. All right. Well, if you have any questions about the gardener landscape, get in touch and Patrick Murphy will answer. I'm Sarah Nardi. Send your questions to WGLT.org grow.